go to the book of First Peter today. And I do want you to know that uh, the reason for the sermons, uh, the sermon subject this morning is not tied to recent Supreme Court decisions. I'd planned on preaching on this subject before. Uh, I knew what those things would be. But uh, this morning, <clears throat> as in actually continuation of a longer series that we've had this spring and into early summer, is how we ought to behave in the church of God. And as I was going through the sermons I had preached, I realized that we had not taken time to discuss one of the most important elements of our service in our relationship from God, and that is personal holiness. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart breaks uh, over the uh, Supreme Court decision. And yet, let me ask you a question. Is there anyone in this room that is shocked that the Supreme Court would decide the way they did? I heard one commentator going on. It was a foregone conclusion, the decision that would be made, just as it was on Obamacare and other things. These decisions were made not by the judges, uh, but if you want to look for a real answer, they were made by our society as a whole. Our, our judicial system is really a reflection of what goes on in, in our society. And we can sit here and bemoan and complain and cry, and uh, I would hope no one would uh, uh, go to uh, cursing and violence, but that's where some people want to go. That's not the biblical response. And, you know, I, I thought about this. I thought... As many people were comparing what happened Friday to what happened in 1973 with another Supreme Court legislation called Roe versus Wade, where they created a, a human civil right to murder unborn babies. I don't know what the exact count is, but it's got to be closing in on over 55 million babies have been murdered in this nation since the Supreme Court decision. Stop and think about that. Fifty-five million. That is more than double. If you take the population of New York City by itself, that is almost seven times the population of New York City in the city limits, about 8 million people, almost eight times, eight New York cities have been sacrificed. And we could go on, and let me tell you, this decision that was made Friday is not going to have any less of a detrimental effect on our society than that one did. But I will explain to you this. Our job is not to fight the Supreme Court. Our, our job, the Supreme Court is just reflecting what is going on out there every day. I remember getting a, a missionary letter, and I, I, uh, in the letter, the missionary said, It's our job to change society. Hasn't that, isn't that what God called the church to do? And uh, I want to challenge you today, that's not what God has called the church to do. If God has called the church to change society, then what I would like to suggest to you is that Matthew chapter 16 cannot be true because society has prevailed. It has gone on its direction. Society has won those battles, if you want to look at it that way. But Jesus said His church would not be prevailed against. So, so therefore, that's not our battle. But I will tell you this. There was a day 
in this land, when there was a majority of honest citizens who attended church services just like this where the word was preached, and it was a different country back then. You see, obedience to this book called the Bible will change society, but that's not our goal. God has not called us to fight and try to conquer sin. I think of the great preacher of days gone past, Billy Sunday. Uh, Not a Baptist man, but certainly... Uh, uh, even in the secular history books, he is listed as uh, the spearhead, the leader of those that opposed the use of alcohol in this country. And it was primarily through his preaching that shaped society to a point, this whole nation, to where they passed a law making it illegal in the United States to imbibe alcoholic beverages. It was called Prohibition. Of course, if you read any history of prohibition, uh, they blame all the gangster violence and all this and that. And let me tell you, the bloodiest day in gangster violence in Chicago was the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where Al Capone sent his crew of thugs dressed up as policemen to murder the rival gang. You know how many people died on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre? I believe it was five. Does that impress anyone out here? I mean, we got an idiot in jail in North Carolina that did better than that all by himself. Didn't need a machine gun either. Don't believe what you see on the History Channel. They only put what's on there, what makes people pay for the cable subscriptions. That, that's what drives the History Channel. It's mostly not history, maybe great entertainment. Very, very poor history, most of it. But Billy Sunday had several sons, all of which became alcoholics, died drunkards' deaths. The man who preached against liquor could not keep his own sons out of its grip. If that's the price of being a great preacher... I refuse to pay it. My sons are more important to me than shaping society. Could we say amen to that? You see, that's not the job of the church. The Bible explains what the church is supposed to do. And we've been going over that the last several Sundays. And and this morning I I do want to get personal and I do want us to, to think and grapple with some of these things. But let's start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And I want us to read through the end of the chapter. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober... And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That's why I wanted the song sung this morning that was sung. 
Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of person judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof fadeth, falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. I would like to challenge you today to take our time this morning and think about the subject of personal holiness. It is a command in the Scripture. It is something that we need to be avidly working for. I was talking with someone this week, and, and the question was asked, well, why do, why, it doesn't make sense. Why do we sin so much? Why do, are we so weak when it comes to the temptations of this world? And I only have two things to say to you. Number one, welcome to the human race. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. Number two, if you, not, if you are not engaged in the battle against sin in your own personal life, that means you are sinning in your personal life. Did you get that? If you're not fighting against sin in your personal life, it's because you are sinning in your personal life. And you may be saying, but pastor, I'm not committing murder. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not doing some wicked thing. I'm just kind of coasting. Let me tell you something. You cannot coast in this world in which we live. If you do... You're going to be going in the wrong direction. If you're not going in the right direction on purpose, I promise you, you'll be going on the wrong, in the wrong direction. It's like standing on the seashore. They tell you never to go into the water that's above your knees. How many people know why they tell you that? Because there's this thing called waves. And so if the water's at your knee and a wave comes in, it's going to be the middle of your chest. Unless it's a big one, then it'll be over your head. And it can knock you down and literally drag you out to your death. If you're not prepared for that, you're, you're not going to live very long. Should you go playing in the ocean? I'm a strong swimmer. Could I challenge you? The ocean's a little stronger current than you are a swimmer. Uh, it has a little more resources than you do. And so we start back in verse 13. It says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, this phrase, gird up the loins, is a, a uh, what we would call an idiom. It is a uh, use of speech. It's a collection of words. Now, 
it, it really means when a soldier was getting ready for battle, he would gird up his loins. That meant that he would take the belt around his loose outer garment and he would tighten it. Because when you're in a battle, you don't want things flopping around. Uh, you don't want your pants falling down while you're trying to fight the enemy. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. You don't want to be running toward the enemy and reach for your sword and realize that it's 20 feet behind you because it fell off. Read the story of Amasa. That actually happened to him. Uh, he, he didn't live very long. When it says, gird up the loins of your mind, in our modern time, we'd say, you better wake up and get ready. How many of you have ever taken the SAT or ACT, one of those college tests? You know what? You don't just walk in the room like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Or you're not going to get a very good score. You, you've got to be prepared. You've got to study. You've got to go over things in your mind. You've got to be on that edge. You've got to be ready to go. If you had a big job interview and you're trying for this position and, and you've been told that if you can get through this interview, the position is yours. Are you going to forget to shave, guys, before you go? Are, are you going to forget to iron your shirt and, and make sure that your tie matches your clothes? I mean, you'd get dressed up. You'd be prepared. You'd be a little bit nervous for that. You'd, you'd want to do your best. That's what gird up the loins of your mind means. It means you got to get out of neutral. you got to put it into gear. you got to get thinking here. Why do we need to gird up the loins of our minds? It says, wherefore, and the reason is, if you read verses 1 through 13, you've been given the greatest revelation that God has for mankind. What is that revelation? It is the story of Jesus Christ. You know, you, you turn on TVN or some of those radio shows or whatever, and they're, they're talking all the time about new revelation. Let me tell you, there's one reason why God is not in the revelating business anymore. It's because He's already given you the greatest revelation that can possibly be had. God in human flesh walking on this earth. How can it get any better than that, my friend? Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Get with it. Don't just believe it because somebody's standing in a suit and telling you so from something that looks like a pulpit. It says, be sober. You know, there are some preachers today that act like they're trying out for late night television on Sunday morning. I mean, they got the best jokes. And, you know, jokes really aren't that good unless you got timing. you got to put the punchline at the right place. Otherwise, it's not funny anymore. Have you ever met somebody that just couldn't tell a joke to save their life? I mean, it didn't matter what it was. It was never funny. They never laughed. But you know what we're doing today? We're laughing ourselves into oblivion. We're so busy trying to imitate the world 
that they don't take the message of the gospel seriously anymore. That's what the word sober means. It doesn't mean that we cannot laugh. But when we're dealing with this issue of our salvation, we've got to be sober. I remember a guy trying to explain this to me one time. He said, now listen. When a person prays and asks Jesus to save them, they're saved, right? And I didn't know where he was going. I said, well... If a person prays in faith and, and believes the Word of God, they're saved. Well, well, then shouldn't we just try to get people to pray? And all of a sudden, the light went on. I said, now I know where he's going. The sinner's prayer is not another bead on your rosary chain, my friend. It, it's not just something you say. I've had people over the years, well, Pastor, I'd like to, to, to get baptized, but, but I don't want to be a member of the church. I said, well, we don't baptize you then. Why? Why won't you baptize? Because baptism and church membership, are, you can't separate the two. If you're not willing, if your baptism is your public testimony of faith in Christ... If you don't want to do something with that public testimony, I'm not going to give you a public testimony you can't do anything with. It's not Bible. There's a connection there. We have a lot of people that want to get saved today because they want fire insurance. I want to tell you, God doesn't sell insurance. He doesn't sell anything. You couldn't afford it if he put it on the shelf. You couldn't pay for it in a hundred lifetimes. That's why it's a free gift. You see, I don't know about you, But I, I wasn't even listening to the news, and I got a phone call saying, Pastor, and talked to me and told me what the Supreme Court decision that had been made. And I'm going, oh, wow. You know, there's a part of me that wanted to lose hope. And I remembered that I felt that same way. In 1973, I wasn't old enough to really understand what Roe versus Wade was all about. I'm trying to remember. I think I was in the third grade or something like that. But I do remember when Bill Clinton got elected to president the first time. I lost a lot of hope because I knew what it meant. And I knew what was coming. And my wife was worried about me, and she should have been. Because I took my eyes off Jesus Christ and put it on the things that were happening around me. And you know what it says here? It says, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what? I, at, at the end of that time, it was a better part of a day. I just walked. And I kept walking. And I kept walking. And, and I realized, and I began talking with myself, and then, then I got right and started talking with the Lord. It realized there was no absolute reason why I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, had a right to lose hope and be so discouraged about something that was happening here on this earth. And I said, by God's grace, I'm not going to do that again. Well, I sure wanted to uh, Friday. And I realized that, wait a minute. 
Gird up the loins of your mind. You know what? You cannot do this by accident. It's got to happen on purpose. And you've got to be sober. You've got to realize this is a terrible thing that has happened. It is evil. But even in the justice's decision, Justice Kennedy said, and I read part of this, was that we are not taking from any church the right to oppose same-sex marriage. And we forbid any government agency from, t- from punishing a church or religious organization that opposes same-sex marriage. Now, do you believe that? They've lied to us before. They're going to lie to us again. I don't believe that. But even in the decision that they made, they have to give assent to the fact that this book is diametrically opposed to what they did. They have to. Even the most godless among them could not make their declaration without making a statement that God is against what we're doing, but we're going to do it anyway. I don't know about you, but that puts fear in my heart. Because you don't stick your finger in God's eye and get away with it. It just doesn't happen, my friend. Be sober. But you see, my hope has never been in Washington, D.C. Not even when Ronald Reagan was in the White House. My hope is not in Congress. And if I want to make you laugh, I'll say my hope is not in the New York City Council and its mayor. And everybody will laugh, right? Because what a joke. What a joke. But let me tell you something. It says that we're to hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, do you get that? Jesus is coming again. And He is going to bring judgment for this world. But guess what? He's bringing grace for you and me. Lots of it. In fact, He's bringing so much that it's going to take you and I all of eternity to enjoy it. Stop getting discouraged with what is happening today and start hoping for what is going to happen when Jesus comes back. But you've got to prepare your mind to think that way because that's not the normal way we think. Be sober. Realize, hey, this is an evil day in which we live. But because of what Jesus has done and what he is going to do, I've got hope because there's grace coming. Now, let's get to verse 14. It says, as obedient children. Now, I'll tell you, there is nothing more wonderful than obedient children. They are such a pleasure. How many of you have ever had to put up with disobedient children? How many of you were a disobedient child? Everybody raise their hand. Amen. It says, as obedient children. You know, I I love children when they're little. Because you can say, Jason, do this. And he goes and he does it. Now, if I say, Stephen, do this. Why? Can you explain to me the reason for wanting to get this done? Now, he doesn't do it all the time. But I'll just pick on him a little bit. As obedient children, you know what? 
you don't have to understand why. I mean, I, I didn't plan it this morning, but the book of Esther is a perfect illustration of this. Did Mordecai understand why he shouldn't bow before Haman at the king's command? It's just because God said so. Haman, um, Mordecai did it. Haman plotted the death of the Jewish people, and God used the whole situation not only to protect the Jewish people, but to help the Jewish people understand that God is still working on their behalf, even for those that refuse to go back to the land of Israel and worship God God's way. God was still working. As obedient children... Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Now, Rick Warren had not yet written his book on the purpose-driven life. But God put the answer right here. Before Rick Warren even thought about, was thought about, let alone his book. Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. How many of you remember what life was like before you were saved? You remember the things that you did? The things you gave your life for? What you were striving to get? What you thought would make you happy? Then you get saved and you realize that none of those things are worth anything. That only Jesus matters. Then we pick up Rick Warren's book and it says, Oh, God put those desires in my heart so that I could know how He wants me to serve Him. And see, I've always had this just this fantastic ability to mix inebriating beverages. And so God's going to use my ability as a bartender to bring people to Christ. Now, Rick Warren would never endorse that, I don't think. But that's what his book says if you take it to the ultimate end. God never designed what is in your heart to determine your direction. God designed what was written in this book to determine your direction. And that book tells us that we need to be a part of a local church and to serve God through that church. And and the way that God has set things up in the line of authority and all of these, and we've talked about this in past weeks. But every once in a while, I got an email this past week. Unsigned, certainly unsolicited, and I'm always very careful, and you should be, about opening attachments, and it had an attachment there that was in text, and I said, oh, okay, this should be safe to open, and so I opened it up, and all of a sudden, thousands of words started appearing on my screen, and it said, you said, and it listed something, and then it says, but the Bible says... And I I went summary through this, and one of them was, you said that Jesus Christ and God the Father are one, so how can Jesus commit His Spirit to the hand of the Father? Well, immediately I know he's reading new versions, not the Bible. And number two, anybody that would ask that question cannot believe that Jesus is God. And so I wrote him back a very short little email. Sir, ma'am, whoever you are, uh, I don't know what you're trying to accomplish, but a summary reading of your replies in this email tells me you are in deep spiritual need. If you'd like to show up to church, and if you're here today, see me after the service, and we'll set up an appointment to help you. Uh, But I don't ever expect to see that person. You see... They already know all the answers. God can't help you if you know all the answers, my friend. But if you'll be an obedient child, 
and realize that what you had in this world is after the lust and the traditions of your fathers and they're empty and vain and will not get you to God. You know, that's the difference between the Baptist and the Reformers or the Protestants. In order to be a Baptist, you had to renounce your Catholic baptism or your Protestant baptism and had to be baptized in a Baptist church. Do you know that Martin Luther... John Knox, John Calvin, all the great reformers died believing that their Catholic baptism being sprinkled as a baby, which is not baptism at all, was sufficient for them to be obedient to the Word of God. In fact, Mr. Zwingli went about so much with so much violence as to put people to death who refused to believe the efficacy or the goodness of being sprinkled by a few drops of water on your head as a child and call it baptism. We're different. We don't want the vain traditions received. And here it is the command, and he says... But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, Sanctify yourselves therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. Now there is a group of churches probably reached their pinnacle in the late 40s up into the early 60s called holiness churches. And you could always recognize one because they would have a little, usually a little placard by the door that described certain things that if you didn't meet their requirements, you were not welcome. In fact, they would have clothes hanging on the coat rack at the, uh, in the lobby. And if you walked in, ladies, without a skirt on, they would say, here is a collection of skirts. If you want to stay for our service, you must put one of these on because we don't allow pants in our service. If you had earrings in your ears, men, if you had... Uh, uh, gold tie, cuff, uh, uh, tie tack on or any kind of cufflinks or ornaments of any kind, they would say, if you're going to stay for our service, they'd have people at the door. They would say, just take them off, put them in your pocket, uh, take your rings off. If you want to be a part of our service, they thought that was part of being holy. Could I challenge you? If you look at those same churches today, they were the first ones that changed all the rules. They were the first churches that brought rock and roll music into their service. They were the first churches that embraced the world wholeheartedly. You know why? Because they had a standard of holiness that they had set. And when they realized that that standard of holiness was theirs and not the Bible's, there was nothing stopping them from going whole hog into the world. Those churches today are plagued with immorality and worldliness. You see, what the Word says is, be ye holy. Now, what does the word holy mean? It just means separate. Now, we understand in the context of God that God gets to define what we separate from. Amen? That, that's why he said, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and vain traditions and ignorance. Hey, there's a lot of stuff you didn't know when you lived in the world. There's a lot of stuff you were just ignorant of before you came to Christ. Ignorance is not the issue. Ignorance can be fixed. Rebellion can't be. 
disobedience, purposeful and willful, cannot be fixed. God's got to change your heart. And He says, I want you to be holy because I am holy. So, verse 17 explains a little further. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of person judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Do you think that God believes that it's okay if Jesus were to walk down the aisle, would He pass out beer on Sunday morning? Now, let me tell you, there's a lot of people, a lot of churches that, Oh, yeah, hey, I never thought of that, preacher. That sounds pretty good. Could I challenge you that's not the Jesus of the Bible? Because He wouldn't do that. Somebody says, But He turned the water into wine. Let me tell you something. It wasn't alcoholic wine. It was grape juice. And you say, that's your opinion. Well, we spent about 12 weeks going through it word by word and definition by definition and verse by verse in the Bible. We don't have 12 weeks this morning, but I'll get you the copy of the sermons and you can listen to them if you have any questions. But the Bible is very clear. Alcohol has no part in the life of a Christian, period. It's part of being holy. Guess what? What about smoking? Oh, but weed's okay. It's natural. Only if you're the mayor of New York. Uh, Listen. It's not okay. The biggest problem with smoking anything is it does all the smoke and you're just the sucker, amen? No, I'm sorry. The biggest problem is what it's associated with. I like what Brother Clayton says about Bush Gardens, the big amusement park built by the Bush Beer Company in Florida. He says, every brick screams with the hungry children that have gone without their food so their parents can buy beer Bush's beard to satisfy their drunkenness. I I like that quote. I know who said it, and I'll give credit to it. You see, these things do not have part of holiness. How about media? I mean, that just includes everything. What's in print? What's on your cable? Television, radio. What do you allow in your life? If Jesus were sitting beside you as you were whatever, would you be embarrassed or say, Oh, just a minute, let me, let me get past this scene. Everything else is good but this one. You see, that's what Holy is talking about. That's why Paul said, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. It says, And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters. See, the Bible says, No immorality. Can I define fornication for you? That's a good Bible word. It's not in any of the new versions. Fornication is anything of a sexual nature that does not happen between a single man and a single woman married to each other. Can I get any more clear than that? Anything. of a sexual nature that does not happen between a single man and a single woman who are married to each other comes under the biblical definition of the word fornication. 
I don't think I need to go through a list of all the different types of fornication there are in the world. Because we know far too much about that. And far too less about abstinence from it and holiness. You see, holiness is living as God would want me to live. You see, wearing modest clothing, if you were here for our ladies' meeting, my wife explains this. I I do not wish to take sermon time on Sunday morning in a mixed audience and describe either man or woman's immodest apparel. I think that's best handled in private meetings among people who need to make the changes. Amen? We want to make our church a sanctuary. That's a safe place where you can come and concentrate on the things of God. We want it to be different in here. That's what the word holy means. Some preachers thought that that meant you wear a suit and tie when you're mowing the lawn. Uh, no. Put on work clothes when you're working. But they ought to still cover you. Amen? That's holiness. That's what it's talking about here. You see, if you have any question, don't ask me. Or you, you can, I mean, be my guest. I'm willing to talk to you about it. Ladies, ask, your, ask my wife if you have questions on, on dress and things like that. But I'll tell you what would solve the problem if you'll just do what it says in verse uh, 17 here is what does God think of what I do? What does, what does God, what would God say about my standard of holiness if I were just honest enough and girded up my loins and thought about it a little bit. That solved 90% of your questions. And the other 10% wouldn't matter anyway. Amen? Because here's where he goes. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed... With corruptible things. You're not redeemed with corruptible things. And it goes on to talk about silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these, lifetime, in, in these last times for you, who by Him do believe in God. You see, I believe in God because of what Jesus did. That's what Peter's saying here. That's why it says it is finished up there. Jesus said that. He said He paid for all sin. That's why I don't have to work to pay for my sin. That's why I don't have to put money uh, in the offering plate to pay for my sin. Because Jesus paid for it all. And if Jesus paid for it all, and if I believe in God who raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, it says that my hope my faith and my hope might be in God. And that will keep me from being discouraged when the Supreme Court does very ungodly things. 
And that will keep me from worrying about all these things that I worry about because I'm supposed to be holy and i got a lot of work to do on holy. How about you? Uh, there's some effort that needs to be expended in that direction. You see, verse 22 says, Seeing that ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now, I don't want to bring up bad things, but I do want you to understand what this is talking about here. See, there's an awful lot that goes on in the world that's called love. But would you allow yourself to understand that when the world uses the love, the word love, it means I care for you so I can get something from you. Some of you know exactly what I mean by that. It's done terrible things in your life. Divorce. That's not love, my friend. That's an agreement. That's a contract. In fact, some churches have gone to giving out marriage contracts. We will never do that at Open Door Bible Baptist Church. Because if your marriage isn't an agreement of love to each other as believers in Jesus Christ and a commitment of love to God, I'm not performing the ceremony. And all the paperwork in the world won't give you the rights and won't give you the joy that a commitment to love God and love each other will give you. Does that make sense? You see, if I want to love you, I obey what the Bible says. And the Bible says, be holy. If my holiness does not bring me into a closer relationship with other people trying to be holy, it's false holiness. There's an awful lot of that going around. You know, there are people that want to serve God so that other people will see them serve God. That's not love. I've tried to put this into a street preaching sermon and have yet figured out how to do it. But I will challenge you this, and I've always really offended people, and I'm sorry this morning, but I'm not sorry. I, I want you to get the truth. Whether it's offensive or not, the most selfish person in this world is someone that helps someone else so that they can better themselves. How can you be more wicked than that? I don't need your problems to get me closer to God. Yet, if you're trying to do enough good works to get to heaven, that's exactly the road which you are on. Gird up the loins of your mind and start paying attention here. There's an awful lot that goes on for truth that is not truth. There's an awful lot that goes on for love that isn't love at all. If I truly love you in my preaching, I want you to draw closer to Christ. And that means you have to draw farther away from the world. And that ought to affect every area of your life. It says, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Do you know that if you get enough of this book in your life, it will change the way you think about things? Do, do you know that if you be in church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Thursday night and come for visitation and special activities, that, that there will not be room in your life for a lot of other things that you think is very important? 
I remember early on we were just starting the church and little Peter was in a reading contest at the library and they gave him uh, several tickets to a Yankees game. Now, of course, being from Baltimore, there's no place I'd rather not be uh, than watching the Yankees play. Unless the Orioles are beating them, then that's pretty cool. Uh, but the tickets were for a Thursday night. We have church Thursday night. Now, many churches have church on Wednesday night. But our service is on Thursday. And I remember him coming and showing me the tickets. And I think he was only maybe five or six years old. But he already knew in his mind what the answer was. But he didn't like it. You know, this is only once. This is a five-year-old kid. And I'm sitting there, no, it's not only once. Yes, it is. They're only good for one night. Uh, no, you see, we're just going to obey the truth. He could care less about sports of any kind today. Now, get him some books and he gets interested, but... Let me tell you, what it's talking about here is just simply obeying the truth. It will purify you. You will not have to worry about losing your friends. Your friends are going to start doing everything they can to lose you. If you do what's in the Bible. You know where friends ought to be? My closest friends today are people that I serve the Lord with. Other preachers that I talk to and friends that I have made in, in the ministry. I found, I found my wife serving the Lord. Let me tell you something. That's the way it is, my friend. And it says that this is the natural result of being born again God's way, not of a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Did you get that? It says that we're born again by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. That's talking about Jesus Christ. His name is the Word. It's talking about this book called the Bible. It is the Word of God. By the way, it doesn't contain the Word of God. It it isn't just part of the Word of God. It isn't the best that we can do. It is God's Word in English language. You see, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. You know all that's left of the Roman Empire today? Handful of bridges and some roads and the ruins of the Colosseum. You know, people think that the great big things that were done in Rome were done in the Colosseum. That's not true. The big events in Rome were in the Circus Maximus. Hundreds of thousands of people, bigger than any stadium that we have today, was the circus in Rome. It's where we get our modern day circus from, the same term. You know, all that's left of the circus is a hill on which people build houses and other things. There's nothing left of it. That's where they martyred the Christians. That's where the gladiators fought. The big ones. The little ones was in the Colosseum, the private parties for 60,000, 70,000 people. But when the city of Rome came together, it was at the circus. Nothing left but a mound of dirt. The glory of man. You talk about the splendor of the kings of old. What do you got left? 
of the royal family. Uh, two darling little grandchildren, I guess. But all the jewels and all the riches are locked up in the Tower of London. Can the queen go play with the royal jewels? No, they actually belong to the country. Technically, they belong to her, but not really. The glory of man is gone. But see, long before there was a place called the United States, there was a church, there was a Bible, and there was the Church of Jesus Christ. Long before there was a nation in Europe, there was a Bible. There was a church. In the Middle Ages, the hated Anabaptist had only one true charge laid to their cause worthy of death. And that was their refusal to live their simple and pure lifestyle and join the Roman Catholic Church. That was their sin for which they were hunted as dogs and put to death by the thousands. Nobody knows what the toll of the Inquisition. If you read a history book, it'll tell you uh, 20,000 people. But if you'll study history, it was in the millions, untold millions of continental Europe that were killed and slaughtered because they wanted to read this book in their own language. They wanted to pray with God, to God, without having a priest write the prayer for them first. Let me tell you, based upon this book, God's Word is going to be here long after all of these things that we're dealing with today are gone. Because it liveth and abideth forever. But do you get that last phrase, and we're done. Do you get that last phrase in verse 25? And this is the word which by the gospel was preached unto you. And this is the word, this everlasting word that fadeth not away, that endureth forever. This word is where you learned about the gospel of Jesus Christ. How that He died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. How that it is finished applies to everything in your life. To get into God's grace. To be a recipient of His love. It's all done. All paid for. All you have to do is ask. But if you truly believe in Jesus... Bible salvation demands a holy life. That's not determined by the Supreme Court of the United States or by any convention of churches or any organization here on earth. It's determined by what's written in this book. And this book gives you a personal responsibility to examine your life And ask God to give you grace to fulfill that command. Be ye holy as I am holy. And by the way, true holiness does not bring hatred for those who aren't. It says that it will bring unfeigned love of the brethren. But what did Jesus tell us to? He said, love your enemies. How do you do that? Uh, by learning to love the brethren first. Then it's not so hard to have the compassion that we need to reach into the world in which we live. Be ye holy. 
It's not an option. It's how a child of God is to live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, there's not a one of us in this room that does not have problems with our holiness. They don't have to be great problems to affect our relationship with you, Lord. But Lord, my my first prayer would be to those that may be in this room and aren't saved. That they would realize that salvation is a commitment of your life to God. And once we do that, God will make us holy. Lord, I pray for those that are saved. That you would help us to understand that your word abides forever. And then we need to gird up the loins of our mind. Be sober and hope to the end, because you're coming back. And you'll bring us far more grace than we could ever enjoy. We ask you, Lord, to make us holy. Not self-righteous. Not looking at ourselves, but looking to the Creator who loved us and gave Himself for us. That being saved would actually mean something that we could see and understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.